Hey everyone, welcome to the Green Scene Podcast. I'm Jeremy Safran. TGSP is the top global cannabis podcast. Everyone has questions and we'll cover the stories that matter and showcase the guests who make a difference. This week on TGSP, we take you to California, the newest and potentially largest market to legalize cannabis so far. Our next story is about getting high in the Golden State. Starting Monday, 39 million people will be able to legally smoke pot for fun in California. Tonight in California, they're lining up to light up. We've been looking forward to this day for a long time, haven't we? Marijuana today became legal to buy and possess for anyone 21 and over. Lines forming outside dispensaries from Oakland to San Diego. And business is set to boom in what's expected to be a $7 billion industry in the state. So how did we get here? On this podcast, we'll speak with a friend of the pod and someone who has been a crucial player in ending prohibition through education, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, a well-known Los Angeles physician who has been involved in the industry for many years and represents thousands of patients. Here's what you need to know. Bonnie has been a physician for 26 years, and the first 15 of her career was a pediatric emergency medicine physician working in various emergency rooms in Southern California. After working crazy, crazy hours for many years, Bonnie said that she was almost burnt out, and that's when she took a leave of absence. Uh, the first about 15 years or so uh, were, um, were spent as a pediatric emergency medicine physician uh, working in various emergency rooms in Southern California. As you can well imagine, I uh, had some burnout after I had my own child. Mm-hmm. You do work crazy hours when you work in the ER. Mm-hmm. And um, I took a leave of absence, and during that time, I had a friend who was struggling with an illness, and she asked me about medical cannabis, and uh, like most physicians at the time, and even until today, um, they didn't really know much about it, but I was intrigued, and um, she was unfortunately in a desperate circumstance, too. So I helped her, and in helping her, I started educating myself, and I was... Um, uh, became very interested in uh, using cannabis medically. And um, since I wasn't really interested in working crazy hours anymore, I started working in a uh, small uh, cannabis specialty office, medical office in Long Beach, California, and then uh, really fell in love with the patients, with the practice. And then I opened my own practice a few years later, and that's where I've been now almost a decade. So you heard Bonnie mention that she fell in love with cannabis patients and their willingness to look to other options and to be educated on what works for them and their bodies. So who are the patients and what are their ailments? Bonnie says that's a bit of a loaded question. There are so many things that cannabis can be used for. And again, it's not, you know, we have to be very careful that we're not going to walk around saying, oh, it cures everything or Mm. that it treats everything because it doesn't. But Because of the endocannabinoid system, which is the system in your body that works as like a physiologic regulator of your balance, the job of this system is to maintain homeostasis. And I I heard one, um, someone once explain it as, you know, like a wave comes, hits you like a wave of injury or illness or inflammation, and then your body is supposed to kind of bounce back uh, by making these compounds called endocannabinoids that work to protect and lessen the imbalance and to try to pop you back into balance. And so those, that system, it's not in just one spot in your body, it's kind of everywhere. And it's involved in almost every physiologic process. So when we talk about 
you know, what kind of patients use cannabis. We have people with cancer using it. I have to take care of a ton of kids with epilepsy and autism, people with chronic pain, uh, people with anxiety, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, um, ADHD, Tourette syndrome. But what's interesting about a lot of patients is that I will tell you that many illnesses boil down to um, chronic pain, anxiety over the illness and over the disruption in your lifestyle, right? Mm-hmm. And then also sleep sleep issues. And cannabis works beautifully for pain and sleep and anxiety in addition to as anti-inflammatory and antioxidant and anti-convulsant. So there's, there's a lot of different conditions that come walking into my medical practice. You know, people who mostly, and I will say for the majority of them, have already tried conventional medication and aren't getting anywhere or are not very happy with the side effects. And so we see so many different diagnoses, but um, ultimately it's related to that endocannabinoid system. There are many different sides to cannabis, and as Bonnie mentioned, it really is a personal journey for some folks. A lot of patients are worried about the psychoactive effects of THC and what they will feel like. And a lot of patients haven't used cannabis before. We asked Bonnie what her approach is with those patients. So my approach is uh, pretty methodical. And every patient that comes in, I ask them, have you used cannabis in your lifetime? Um, Have you used it recently? Just so I can assess what their experience is. Because people who have used it before, especially people who say, oh, back in the day, I smoked some pot. And they know what to expect. And certainly those people who have never used it before clearly have some um, anxiety about using THC because it's hard to explain to somebody what maybe feeling high is like, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not the same as um, being drunk or being under the influence of, of some kind of pharmaceutical. So um, I always assess the patient to see, you know, what their experience is. And then, of course, you know, what are we trying to treat? Um, right now, you know, in California and in, in other states, um, There are products that are what we call high CBD, low THC products. Then there's products that have just high THC with very little CBD. And then there's products that have maybe a mix. So sometimes like you'll pick up an edible and it'll say on it a one-to-one ratio or 50-50. So that means it's half CBD, half THC. And what I do when I'm approaching patients is I, I, you know, we try to come up with a plan. So for instance, let's say it's an elderly person who's never used cannabis before, I would always start with high CBD, low THC, just because I don't want that person to be uncomfortable or to feel Mm -hmm. um, unsteady or dizzy. And we start with high CBD, low THC, and we kind of work down the ratio, so to speak. So something like 25 parts CBD to one part THC will have very little intoxicating effects, but it may or may not work. So if somebody you know, we get started with that, and on a follow-up visit, the patient says, you know, I really didn't feel better. It didn't help me with my pain. It didn't help my anxiety. Then we may move to something that's a little bit, has a little bit more THC relative to the CBD, something like maybe a 15 to 1 or a 10 mm. to 1. It, it appears that for most people that about 8 to 1 or 5 to 1, meaning always CBD to THC, so 8 parts CBD to one part THC or under that ratio, like a two to one or one to one, is definitely going to have more of an intoxicating effect because mm-hmm. the THC as relative to the CBD will start having that. But remember that the CBD in there is going to buffer a lot of the psychoactive and maybe unwanted side effects that can happen with THC, such as maybe a little racing heart 
or some people with a little, they get a little paranoia. Right. But at the same time, it's very important to understand that there are people who are using THC medically. It's working beautifully for them. Mm-hmm. And remember, depending on the imbalance that's inside that endocannabinoid system, everybody's chemistry is different. I have some patients who can take a pretty large dose of THC, and they just do not feel intoxicated. They actually tell me, I feel normal. I feel mm-hmm. balanced. And part of that is because their own endocannabinoid system is not functioning at all. Dr. Goldstein has a good way of comparing this endocannabinoid system we keep hearing about to something most people can understand. I like to compare it to like someone who has type 1 diabetes. So remember, type 1 diabetes is when your, your pancreas poops out on you and stops making insulin, right? Mm-hmm. So if you ate something with sugar, your glucose, your sugar level in your bloodstream goes high. And what our insulin is supposed to do is come along when it's triggered by that high sugar and maintain the sugar level at a, quote, normal level. <clears throat> so you eat the sugar, your body kicks out that insulin to make sure you utilize the glucose and that you're not running around with this very high sugar, which can be dangerous. Hmm. So imagine you have this injury or insult to your body in terms of um, um, the endocannabinoid system. You, you get hit with that wave. Now your body's supposed to respond with the endocannabinoid system to keep everything in balance. But it's been shown now with multiple conditions that some people just don't respond by making their own natural endocannabinoid, which, you know, really, for lack of a better word, is like our inner cannabis. Right. So what? how can you... Now, diabetics take shots of insulin because they're not making it. Now, how would somebody who's not making endocannabinoids get cannabis back into their body? Well, Mother Nature gives us this plant, and we can replace what's missing with that. Of course, it is always an individual response, how people respond to CBD and THC. Right. And so most people, with a little trial and error, um, and, you know, we have this saying, go, start low and go slow. You start with a little bit of cannabis and you titrate up, kind of looking for what works for your body. Very similar to what diabetics do, like with a, what we call a sliding scale of insulin. You know, when you're very brand new um, diabetic, you don't know how much to take. You don't know how much your body's going to respond to. And so in the beginning, you're trying to figure it out. And I would say that it's very much like how people, when they're first, using cannabis, they have to try different things to see what suits their body the best. Now that cannabis is legal in California, and we should mention that there's still some local counties that are pretty behind and still catching up, but we wanted to find out about the people with stigma and how it's changed. Many of Dr. Bonnie Goldstein's clients have never touched cannabis before, and so going into smoking it just wasn't an option for many of them. No question that people... Uh, especially patients, people who are not at all using it recreationally. Because remember, some patients also enjoy the recreational use, and there's an overlap in there. Mm-hmm. But many of the people that I see who are brand new to this, who have not used it before, you know, they'll kind of look at me if I ask them if they've smoked anything, and they just say, absolutely not, and I don't want to smoke it. Um, many people are, are against that. And so there are... Um, Edibles that people can use, obviously, that's either eating or drinking it. Anything that ends up into your stomach is really going to be like an edible. There's sublingual tinctures, and then there's also topical that some people use to just rub onto joints or onto rashes to help with anti-inflammatory and pain-relieving effects. Mm-hmm. Um, edibles are interesting in that um, you eat it, um, and again, this is mostly related to the THC content, 
But as you slowly absorb, remember, it takes a long time to absorb, so somewhere between one to two hours for most people, although some people a little bit sooner and some people a little later, but in general, one to two hours by, by the time it kicks in. And then everything that's absorbed through the gut is going to pass through your liver. Your liver takes THC and changes its chemical structure to what I call a cousin compound, 11-hydroxy-THC, and then that gets released into your bloodstream. This cousin compound has a longer half-life, so it allows these edibles to last anywhere from 6 to 12 hours, depending on how much you've taken. It also can dial up some of the intoxication. And so people have to be very careful with that. Mm-hmm. And also this compound tends to be very sedating for some people. So when people use edibles, in my experience, they're usually using very small amounts, very tiny doses, until they find, again, the dose that works. You have to be careful. The most common way to overdose, quote, overdose on cannabis is through an edible. And what I'll tell people is that you cannot harm yourself, but it's very trippy psychologically and it can be very uncomfortable. And so right. for some people, um, it's really very unpleasant. Um, some people just can't seem to figure out edibles. I'll tell you in my practice, I have a pretty large practice here in Los Angeles. I would say probably somewhere between uh, 25 to 40% of patients incorporate edibles into their regimen. Um, many people uh, um, find that it's just the delay of, of um, the delay uh, in the onset is something that they're not really interested in. It's who wants to wait two hours for some, your medicine to kick in, especially if you're in pain? So there are edibles, and then there are sublinguals. It's something we've covered on TGSP before. There are different delivery methods to get THC or CBD into the body. It's also not uncommon for people to get a consistent dosage of some of these compounds. We have all heard about the friend who's had a scary experience with cannabis. So how do we avoid that? If you compare edibles to sublingual, I do like sublingual method of delivery. It appears that there's less variable um, uptake. So when you eat an edible, let's say it's Monday night and you take an edible and you had a large fatty meal, you actually may absorb more of that edible because of what else you've eaten that day. Hmm. Um, And Tuesday night, you may eat the edible, and so say you ate it on an empty stomach. It can vary from one night to another. So a lot of people find that inconsistency very unnerving. They don't know how how come one night it worked great, and the next night I took the same dose and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And so it can vary. There's a lot of variability in absorption through the gut and through the metabolism. So there is some unpredictability there that a lot of people don't like. But that being said, there are people who find that the edibles work great. But again, it's not a huge portion of patients. Sublingual is another way to take it. And basically it means under the tongue. So whether it be a strip like canna strips or whether it be drops or a squirt with a little syringe under your tongue, Mm -hmm. you're basically holding it uh, uh, in the sublingual area, which has a lot of blood vessels which can absorb. And as long as the products are either have some fat or maybe some alcohol or some other type of um, uh, carrier that helps absorb, it's going to get into the system a little bit quicker. I have patients who tell me sublingually that they will feel it in 20 to 30 minutes, so it's a much quicker onset than through the gut. But what's mm-hmm. interesting is that studies show that it is less variable. 
So it may not be a huge absorption factor. And by the way, the longer you hold these things under your tongue, it appears the more you absorb. But also, it's less variable in terms or less erratic than, than through the gut. So that mm. if you, let's say, absorb, let's say it takes an hour for the oil to kick in from under your tongue, um, today it may take an hour tomorrow. It's just a little bit more reliable um, rather than depending on the so many variables that happen in the gut. So many people do like sublingual. What's nice also about sublingual is you can take very tiny doses. Like you could start, you know, some of my pediatric patients, we start on one drop of oil. It gives us tremendous control over the dosing. So we can really find that sweet spot. Last season, we did an episode on pesticides and fungicides in cannabis. And we've told you about the pot products recalled over pesticide levels. Well, now the governor says pot treated with pesticides is a threat to public safety. In an executive order, the state says all marijuana grown with unapproved pesticides must be destroyed. We found out that about 70% of the products on the market in California had an issue with impurities. As Bonnie mentions, now that we have hit January 1st, date of regulation, this should improve. But if we're turning to cannabis as a medicine, how do we make sure that we're getting the purest product with the exact benefit we're supposed to see? There's no question in my mind that what we want is pesticide-free, fungicide-free, chemical-free plant. The whole point of trying to use plant, not only because it's helpful, but it's clean. It's from Mother Nature. Um, You know, I talk about with many of my patients trying to avoid pesticides in their food. You can't just buy... Uh, cherries and tomatoes and lettuce um, co- conventionally because they're loaded with pesticides and it's really creating a huge problem. It creates illness and it does impact human health. There's no question that I would want it ideally that all companies, and again, in California, we're getting regulations very shortly here, but they will allow for some pesti- pesticides. They're going to allow for certain solvents. But I tell my patients to seek out and to try to um, support the companies that are doing it the right way. What that means, though, is that you have to have availability of testing. And so I will tell you that with my pediatric uh, portion of my practice, I take care of a lot of children, the parents will spend an extra few hundred dollars to take a portion of, let's say, the cannabis oil that they bought for their child, and they will send it to a laboratory And they'll tell the laboratory, oh, yeah, no, someone made it for me. It's just, you know, my next-door neighbor. They won't tell them who the company is because they want it blinded. And then that uh, laboratory will give them um, test results so that they can see, which they often share with me, so that we can go through together what is the potency, not only the THC, CBD ratios and the terpenoids, but also are there solvents, um, is there mold, is there bacteria, is there pesticides? And I'm happy to say that many of the products that are on the market now actually are quite clean. I think a lot of the flour that ends up in California shops are um, can be contaminated. I know someone in the laboratory industry who told me about 70% of, of random testing of flour that came into his laboratory uh, tested positive for pesticides. So that's wow. very disheartening. Yeah, but I think with a little effort here in California, especially, and certainly I know in Colorado and some other states, um, you can um, you do your due diligence and you find the companies that are um, trying to grow it without um, any of these chemicals. What's interesting is that since the U.S. government 
does not recognize cannabis as a real crop, um, the designation organic cannot be given to any of the products because mm-hmm. that is something that means that it was approved through the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And so that terminology can't be used, but there are people that are labeling now no pesticides, no solvents, and they're being very open um, showing their test results on their website. So, you know, you hear about a product, you can go online, you go to that particular website, and there, there's the test results. As you've heard from Bonnie, it's important for her to make a plan for her patients. In her new book, Cannabis Revealed, Dr. Goldstein explains how the world's most misunderstood plant is healing everything from chronic pain to epilepsy. I'd like to um, share with you that I wrote a book last year. It's been almost a year on um, available to patients. It's called Cannabis Revealed, and it's mm-hmm. available on Amazon. And really, it explains the endocannabinoid system. It explains the plant. And there's a chapter called How to Use Cannabis as Medicine to try to help educate people to understand where to start. I know there's so much information out there, and it can be overwhelming to the new person, but it's it's exciting. A lot of um, doctors and nurses are turning to my book almost like a textbook because it really does lay out for the layperson kind of an introduction to uh, cannabis. In the, in the book, too, there's about um, 28 different ailments that I discuss, as well as a number of my patients shared their um, wonderful stories of their success with cannabis. So it doesn't work for everybody, but we have found so many patients um, have gotten great results. It just needs to be an option for people. If you're sick, everything should be on the table so that you can get well. Research, research, research. That's the message. Find out what works for you. There's so many products in the market, and the good news is, as regulation starts to take place, it will provide safer product. Here's what else you need to know this week. As of January 1st, recreational cannabis in California is legal, but the state and local governments still have a lot of work to do. Thousands of licenses are still pending, but they are making some headway. On January 1st, lines at dispensaries in San Diego, Sacramento, and Oakland were quite something. And as the market advances, this will slowly go away. However, there's still a lot of municipalities that were given the green light, but unable to put product on the sale. However, there's still a lot of municipalities that were given the green light, but unable to put product for sale. We'll have a full list of cities and where these things are already rolling on our website, www.thegreenscenepodcast.com. Also, last Thursday, Attorney General Jeff Sessions rescinded a trio of memos from the Obama administration that had adopted a policy of non-interference with marijuana-friendly state laws. Attorney General Jeff Sessions today said it will be up to federal prosecutors appointed by President Trump to decide how to punish marijuana crimes in states where that drug's already legal. Yeah, that's not sitting well with Colorado lawmakers. The criticism was fierce. It was quick. Nearly every Colorado lawmaker said the move is a mistake. What does this mean for recreational users and medical patients? Well, we called up Morgan Fox, the Director of Communications for Marijuana Policy Project, the nation's largest marijuana reform organization. He's going to break it down for us. Well, back in 2013, uh, Deputy uh, Attorney General James Cole issued a memo uh, that was kind of building on some previous policies, uh, basically saying that, uh, or directing uh, federal prosecutors uh, to deprioritize uh, the uh, prosecution of uh, federal marijuana law against 
uh, any businesses or individuals that were in compliance with state law, as long as they also weren't contributing to a set of uh, eight public safety criteria that the Department of Justice established. Um, so federal prosecutors took this to heart and decided that they weren't going to, uh, you know, they still had the ability to go after uh, legal marijuana businesses, but the policy directed them to put their resources into other things first. Um, and this largely created a system where uh, a lot of uh, businesses were felt comfortable moving forward with actually establishing businesses uh, under regulated state programs, and the states felt comfortable uh, allowing them to do so. Uh, this allowed the legal marijuana industry to flourish and uh, strip millions, uh, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, away from uh, dangerous criminal organizations, putting them into the hands of legitimate taxpaying businesses. Um, with the removal of this directive, um, it doesn't really change anything in terms of the ability of the Department of Justice to enforce federal marijuana law. Uh, what it really is is sort of the removal of that directive to not concentrate on those cases. Uh, however, whether or not to prosecute or go after uh, legal uh, state legal businesses is still very much up to uh, the individual U.S. attorneys that are involved. And they can do a number of things, uh, be it from continuing the, the policies that existed before and not go after uh, uh, legal businesses, or they could do things like sending threatening letters to landlords, threatening asset forfeiture, all the way up to uh, you know, armed SWAT raids on dispensaries and things like that. So they have a lot of leeway in both whether or not they can prosecute and how exactly they decide to go about federal marijuana enforcement. So again, where does this lead us? And what does it mean to patients and access? For right now, it, this won't mean anything uh, for patients or for medical marijuana programs because uh, there are still uh, spending restrictions in place until January 19th that prevent the Department of Justice from using any resources to go after uh, uh, medical marijuana programs, uh, be it patients or providers or individual states. So um, medical programs are safe for right now. Um, and that is actually binding. Uh, that's, uh, uh, they legally cannot spend that money. Um, the uh, the Cole memo applied to medical and recreational, and that was simply a guideline. So that didn't have any sort of binding power. Uh, but I think that most U.S. attorneys, you know, when they were watching what was going on in these states and listening to leaders in those states, they see that going after legal businesses is a complete waste of resources and is actually counterproductive to their efforts of uh, trying to catch actual criminal organizations. Uh, right. Now, if those protections uh, that are binding in the spending budget are not continued on Janu by January 19th or Congress is unable to uh, pass a, uh, a continuing resolution, then that means that the DOJ will now be able to spend those resources. Uh, whether or not they do so, I think, is a, a question that is, again, going to be up to the individual U.S. attorneys and federal prosecutors. Uh, however, if those protections are renewed, then the Department of Justice will still have its hands tied when it comes to medical programs, but they will have nothing to uh, prevent them from spending resources going after legal adult use programs. A Gallup poll released in October showed that 64% of Americans supported making cannabis legal for adults. This was also the first time that a majority of Republicans polled supported legalization. So I asked Morgan, why are we even here? Jeff Sessions is a dinosaur when it comes to this, uh, this issue. He is woefully out of touch with his own department, which recommended uh, back in August that they keep the coal memo in place. 
he's out of touch with the president who has said that this should be a states' rights issue, and he's out of touch with the American people who, as you said, uh, you know, nearly two-thirds support legalization across the country. Uh, I think that this is really just a, a personal vendetta against marijuana for him, and you can see that by the people he surrounds himself with. Uh, very recently, Sessions met with a number of people, uh, most notably uh, Kevin Sabet from Project Sam, uh, Robert DuPont, uh, Bertha Madras, and a number of other people who are longtime drug warriors and uh, anti-marijuana activists, uh, and some of whom actually profit from marijuana continuing to be legal, particularly in the case of Robert DuPont, who owns a massive drug testing firm in Illinois. Uh, so these are the people that Sessions is surrounding himself with, without making any sort of effort to reach out to people who might have a different point of view and who are going to have a, a different view of the research and the numbers that we're seeing coming out of these states. So this appears to be something that is just a personal issue for him and one that he doesn't think is going to uh, anger the president because of him stepping out of line with the administration's previously stated point, uh, point of view. So should you be worried? Ryan says it's mostly businesses that might need to step it up. I don't think that individuals have any cause to be worried at this point, but businesses should be very, very cautious. And what I think this really is is a, a call to action. Uh, marijuana businesses have uh, for a long time been uh, able to profit from the fact that uh, these laws are changing, but there hasn't been a whole lot of support from the industry for advocacy. And I think that that really needs to change. If businesses want to make sure that they can uh, stay safe from federal interference, they need to really step up and help advocacy organizations lobby for changes in federal law that will allow the states to determine their own policies without federal interference. Many members of the Republican Party have come out against the move, and lawmakers in most of the legal states have fought back, threatening to block DOJ nominations. Sessions may be on his own with this one. Thanks for joining us on TGSP this week. We hope you like the show. Don't forget to go to our website, www.thegreenscenepodcast.com, subscribe to us, and rate our podcast. We'll catch you next week.